Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to Work Minus, where we talk about how to build a company that can thrive into the future of work. Today, our guest is John Gilman. He's the CEO of Clear Software, and this episode is Work Minus the Fear of Automation. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you on the show. You are on the front lines of, of a lot of the automation stuff people have been talking about. I want you to give a little bit of background of who you are, the company you run, and the type of work you do. Sure. Um, so the company I run is Clear Software, as you mentioned, and we're focused on uh, automating business processes at, at large organizations. Um, we do that through a software platform that we've built that allows people to get their jobs done much, much faster. Um, and where this all originated from was my work as a consultant. Um, so I worked for Accenture and Deloitte for a number of years implementing enterprise software at Fortune 500 companies. And the number one thing that they found was that they, they their productivity actually decreased after we implemented enterprise software. Um, and they could very easily measure that by uh, headcount increases across just about every department. Um, so we realized something was fundamentally wrong with with business software. And what we needed to do was uh, build an automation platform on top of it so that people wouldn't have to jump through 27 screens to enter a customer order or um, jump through 17 screens in three different systems to answer common questions uh, when a customer's on the phone. Mm. So, um, you know, really obvious things, but... And, you know, no one had really done it. So we, we built this uh, intelligent automation platform to essentially say, we don't really care what systems you're using. We're going to allow you to define how you want your business processes to flow as efficiently as possible um, without having to worry about where is this data going to go? That's what we take care of with our platform. Yeah. So just to make sure everyone caught that, you said that just by using enterprise software, it reduces productivity, right? Yeah, and we saw this across the board. Um, every time we implemented, you know, big ERP systems, uh, our, you know, the CFO or COO or whoever was sponsoring the initiative would come back and say, "Look, man, I, I just spent three hundred million dollars over five years implementing this ERP system, and my call center is now three times the size it used to be. My AP department's five times the size it used to be, and my IT department is ten times the size it used to be. And that that wasn't just gut feel. It's literally look at my PNL." Like it's it's increased significantly in all of these departments. Um, so when you see that sort of hard evidence, you start to think, well, maybe you know, maybe, maybe we didn't accomplish what we set out to accomplish here. Yeah, because the promise of software is supposed to be, hey, we'll do it better, we'll do it faster, we'll do it cheaper, easier, all these types of things. But it's amazing that it, it really just turns it on its head that just adding software on its own actually makes things worse, right? Absolutely. You know, on the consumer side, it, it, it's had that effect. Uh, definitely. I mean, w- when you look at Amazon and some of the things that you can do on, on online marketplaces, uh, people are able to do their personal activities much, much faster than they used to be able to do that. But on the business side, the exact opposite has happened. Uh, we started to see fragmentation over the last 15 years where you know, people will buy you know, CRM software for their sales team, they'll buy um, ERP software for the finance team. Uh, and all of a sudden, you end up with a spaghetti monster of IT systems, all of which don't uh, have a great user experience. So the business processes within them are slow, but they also don't communicate with each other. So you, you have this compounding effect of a lack of productivity um, and a lack of, of cross-system interoperability that sort of paralyzes enterprises. 
So when, when somebody is, is thinking about, um, they, they want to add software to, to organize things or to digitize things, um, what, are, what are the reasons why productivity goes down so much? What are people doing or what, what are they, why are we needing to hire so many more people that take care of the software? What are, what's the tedium that's involved in that? Um, typically, it's a poor user experience um, combined with the fact that a job function may span many different modules or screens within a business software. So, you know, as a good example, if I, if I need to create a customer order in SAP, I might have to jump through 27 screens to do that. And on each individual screen, I may be keying in one or two pieces of data. And then sometimes I may have to copy and paste that data to another screen. And you know, obviously the problem there is that going through 27 screens to do something that's fairly straightforward. Hey, a customer bought something. What did they buy? How much of it did they buy? And where do they want it shipped to if it's something that actually gets shipped? And you know, that can span, you know, many screens and sometimes many systems. You know, some customers may say, well, the first two steps of this happen in Salesforce and the last eight steps happen in SAP. So you've got to remember to start in Salesforce, then copy and paste your data over to hmm. SAP. And, you know, people end up having to take a two-week training class to figure out how to enter a customer order. And that should be a very simple thing to do. So then how do you define automation? That's kind of the core thing you guys do. What's a, a layman's term to understand what does automation actually do in all this? Um, it's acting really as an exoskeleton for the human um, to allow them to accelerate their business processes. Um, so there have been a, a lot of terms right now that are pretty hot in the automation space. So you'll hear robotic process automation bantied around quite a bit. And really all that's doing is taking a lot of the old testing automation tools that we knew from the early 2000s and creating macros that run autonomously to complete tasks that a human shouldn't be doing at all, tasks that you know require no human input. So think of something like, I need to reconcile a bank statement. Reconciling a bank statement at an enterprise when you have you know, maybe several hundred thousand transactions a day uh, can be pretty tedious for a human, but your rules uh, don't really change too much. Um, there's not a whole lot of different outcomes associated with that process. So that's something that can be completely automated with a with an RPA tool or or even you know one of our tools, which we would call intelligent process automation. Um, but what, where we really thrive is where humans are involved in the process, where we're saying rather than you jumping through thirty seven screens and tediously copying and pasting data, we're going to make you have you enter that data once, and then we're going to make sure that gets fed into all the various modules within a single system or multiple systems if there are more than one system involved so that you know the human operator gets their job done much faster without um, you know having to, to go through all of that tedium so I, I kind of think of it you, you know my my physical analogy is you see a lot of folks in like Costco Costco employees and, and warehouses where they have those sort of exoskeletons that allow them to lift up boxes that weigh 500 pounds mm -hmm. what intelligent process automation is doing, is allowing humans to uh, basically have a virtual virtual exoskeleton that allows them to uh, carry out these business processes much faster, um, almost like they have a you know a digital virtual assistant helping them through the process. All right. So if somebody is kind of at the beginning of establishing their culture, they're building up, they're scaling up their business. 
automation probably has come across their minds, but they probably have a few reactions. One is that, okay, maybe, you know, automation, I, I'm against that. Uh, I'm against robots taking over jobs, so I'm not going to pursue that. I'm only going to use humans for things. You may have other people that would say like, okay, automation is something only that happens when you get to a certain scale and you, you know, you have an enterprise, then it's useful. Otherwise, it's not. Well, what should be the, the proper approach for somebody who's in that scaling period, who's just building their business? How should they think about automation? Well, one, they shouldn't be afraid of it. So you know, we have that issue quite a bit with our customers where, um, you know, we'll initially come in and, uh, you know, some of the folks that we're working with are thinking, man, these, this is an automation company. They're coming in to eliminate my job. And that's just not true. What we're there to, to do is eliminate the tedium within their job. Um, you know, most job functions add value to an organization, but they also involve some day-to-day activities and tasks that might be pretty menial. You know, data entry that's, you know, duplicated over and over again, um, you know, things that don't really require thought, you know, you're just doing it because you were told that's part of your job description, you just have to do it. Those are the elements that we're trying to take out of people's day to day lives. And, you know, unfortunately, if that's all your job is, if, if you're just doing data entry all day long, um, then, you know, that's something that in the future won't exist as a job function. But, you know, what we're trying to do is, is help people who have High value jobs, you know, you know, customer service rep is actually a very high value uh, occupation because you're you are the face of the business when someone gets on the phone. And if we can eliminate, um, you know, all, all those annoying, you know, can I place you on hold while I look up your invoicing history? Like all those things where the customer has to stay on the phone longer than they want to, um, that improves the customer experience, but also makes the life of the customer service rep easier. So if the customer service rep isn't losing their job, they're getting a happier customer and they're able to have a more positive experience with them throughout the day. So what do you feel like is a good balance to look at when you're in that scaling period, you're thinking about building a team. You need to think about both building your technology team and your your human team that's there. As you look out into the future, what do you think that smart companies right now are doing to kind of prepare both teams and, and how they interface with each other? You know, I think it's sometimes it's a little trial and error because, uh, you know, obviously automation doesn't make sense at a small scale. There's no point to, um, you know, automate a startup of five people. Um, But obviously, as you start to scale and you start to see repetitive processes, um, that's an opportunity for you to optimize your business. So I think you have to plan accordingly based on your data points. And, you know, a great way to do that is with some, you know, very easy process mining tools to, to show that, you know, when I'm a, hundred million dollar a year company and um, you know I'm processing maybe a hundred thousand customer orders uh, or maybe fifty thousand customer orders automation's less of an incentive but you know if I'm 3m or if I'm Johnson and Johnson and I'm processing 50 million customer orders a year or a hundred million purchase orders a year for my vendors there's a huge opportunity there to uh, increase your operational efficiency and start to plan uh, plan for that. So it's definitely got to be a data-driven mindset. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a human element to it as well. You know, you're, you're, if you come in and say, you know, like I alluded to earlier, you're going to bring in an automation technology to help improve your business. That's going to make people feel pretty uneasy. Um, so you've got to be mindful of uh, the human element as well and have some, you know, a little bit of empathy uh, and, and understand that this isn't all just dollars and cents. It's also organizational change management, making sure that people still have a fulfilling uh, work experience. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. 
or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. Yeah. John, you're going to be one of the best people to answer this question. I'm always on the lookout for what are the core human activities that are there that's really, at least, you know, let's say for the next 25 to 30 years, these are only going to be able to be handled by humans. When you step into a company and you look at what can be automated, you're probably much more aware of what the possibilities are. What do you feel like are those tasks that are just going to have to be done by humans foreseeable future? Well, um, any, anything that involves face-to-face interaction or, or human interaction um, for now uh, definitely still needs to be in the hands of, of human beings. But uh, anything that a machine can do right now, a machine should be doing it or, you know, an automation software. So when we think about, you know, tedious data entry or, um, you know, generating reports out of multiple systems, you know, these are things that people spend hours and hours and hours a day doing and they're, um, it's not very fulfilling. You don't feel good doing it. Um, you don't enjoy doing it. Uh, that, that's the uh, that, that's what's going to start to go away as a job function, um, so that, that people will really be uh, focused on you know things like face to face sales, um, you know face to face you know strategic sessions with uh, with customers and vendors, um, and then the uh, you know the sort of the robotic element of it is going to disappear. So what are the things that you feel like people should, even as you're, you're talking to your own employees, you're thinking about your, your children growing up, if you have children, you know, what are the skills you feel like are necessary to invest in? You mentioned sales, you mentioned these face-to-face interactions. As we think about, let's get better at being human. That's just one of the things we talk about in the show of saying, you know, the future is human and machines kind of working together, but we need to get better at our side of, of understanding what are we really good at. If you could choose anything to help your employees and the next generation to invest in in those skills, what would you say they should invest in? I think it's definitely empathy and interpersonal skills. Uh, that's going to be really important uh, because if we, as we start to take the um, you know the hard data driven processes out of our day to day job functions, um, it's going to be primarily more interpersonal. So, you know, I want my kids who are all very young right now uh, to develop empathy, but they still also need to, you know, understand data and understand technology. But, um, you know, we're definitely going to be driven more towards an empathetic world as we eliminate the, um, you know, the repetitive drudgery of, of day-to-day life. So, you know, classic example is if you're, you know, a hardcore introvert and you're technically inclined, um, you know, up until today and e- even today, um, you could basically kind of stick that person in a dark room and have them generate, you know, reports using SQL commands. And um, that person would be great at it. They would never have to deal with people. But when that job function goes away, that person's not going to really have another option. So mm. you know, I, I think, you know, the lack of empathy is going to become a liability with, with folks as we automate more and more. Tell us about the pace of automation right now, as you look at the whole industry. In some ways, it's easy to, to look at and say, well, you know, Maybe things aren't changing that fast. It's not going that that quickly. But other people may be feeling it a lot in certain areas. So from your vantage point, do you feel like things are going fast or slow? And what does that mean relatively to how they were 10 years ago and how they'll be 10 years from now? Um, it's definitely going more slowly than I think the general public thinks. Um, you know, uh, instead of being a, a starry-eyed uh, futurist, I like to be a realist because I'm actually working with my customers every day. And right. you know, I, I understand that they have clunky business processes that 
uh, need to be optimized first. There, you can't put automation on top of a, a terrible business process. So typically we need to re-engineer or you know, one of our partners needs to re-engineer these business processes before we can put automation on top of it. And that's slow and painful at a large organization because they may have 13 different ways of doing something and we want to get them to one standardized way of doing something. Um, so it moves a little uh, slower than, than people think. Um, but the positive side of it is that because of because of the whole RPA boom right now, organizations have started to take a look at automation and realize that there are tangible benefits to this. Uh, you know, the, the dollars and cents uh, add up. Um, so they're starting to look at this and, and really take it seriously, which is which is great. But they also underestimate the huge amount of process re-engineering that needs to be done. And that's that's no small feat. I mean, if you've got a bad business process, it might take you six to 12 months to to um, figure out how to get it to, to function smoothly and, and op- in an optimized manner. So we're talking here in 2020, and you would say we're still in the very early days of becoming an automated society, right? Absolutely. I mean, every, anytime anybody predicts where we're going to be in, in 10 years, they're always catastrophically wrong. I mean, look at where I think five years ago I was watching CNBC and you know, some nutcase on there was talking about how um, nobody was going to be driving in the year 2020. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, now it's 2020 and I'm still driving and everybody's still driving. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think people tend to overestimate the acceleration of, of uh, technology. So it's going to be that way with automation as well. So I would say by um, 2035 or 2040, we're going to see most of the, the data entry jobs eliminated. Um, most of reconciliation-related jobs eliminated, um, but there's still going to be you know, quite a few job functions out there. Um, and you know, maybe as we look out at a grander time scale, 50 to 100 years from now, yes, we're going to be talking about basically having no jobs at all. Um, o- over time, AI is going to develop empathy. So that's actually uh, um, Alan Treffler, who's the, the founder of Pegasystems, he had a great article in Forbes a couple of weeks ago about how um, it's necessary for AI uh, to be built with, with empathy. And you know, my counterpoint to him was, well, we're human beings. So for tens of thousands of years, we've been exposed to various stimuli. Um, we've developed biases, but we've also developed empathy. So it stands to reason that a computing engine who uh, follows the same amount of stimuli as we do in their environment, but has a much faster evolution, can develop empathy much faster. So, you know, I think we'll start to see artificial intelligence develop empathy, and then we can start to apply it to um, specific scenarios like maybe handling a customer call. Um, so, as we start to um, accelerate that growth, we're going to see just about every job function disappear, which means labor disappears. So, how do you distinguish yourself from your peers when there's no labor. Right now, you can say, I'm just going to work harder than my peer and I'll get promoted and, you know, the rest is history. But and the problem is when there's no labor, there's no way for you to distinguish yourself from your peer. And, you know, I think eventually what's, what's kind of funny about automation is it was brought on by capitalism, but it may end up leading us to uh, essentially a, a um, basic social income state where, you know, everyone receives a a stipend and they live their lives and they have a a lot of free time and maybe they work an hour or two a week. But uh, it's interesting that capitalism may eventually lead to socialism. 
Yeah. These are fun discussions to have. Another question I like to ask people is, what would you do personally? If you were getting a, a basic stipend for all your, your, your needs, everything was met, uh, would you still be making software? Or would you, what would you be doing? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I think, I think I would be writing and making music. So, yeah. Which I think if, you know, we look to this future society where these things are, are possible and we're kind of at this cusp where we can actually see, see it as a possibility like that, that's a great chance to think about these things. And like you said, uh, we're, we're not there yet. We're not going to be there next year or in five years. So it's not something we need to necessarily assume is going to happen quickly. But I think we are at the, at the place now where we can start to plan for that. Uh, we can start to put things in order to get there. So I guess, what, what would you say? What's one building block that we can do now to build a future where, where people can enjoy life to that extent where they can, they can do whatever they want? Well, I think schools need to stop taking away art programs and, you know, things that force students to think, you know, and use different parts of their brain. You know, I, I love STEM and I think it's, you know, one of the most important fields on the planet, but, you know, we, we need to understand history. We need to understand art because all of these things shape the way we interact with people. And, um, you know, when I see schools starting to drop their art programs, I'm thinking this is really terrible because we're going to need that in the future when, when STEM is less of, when STEM is less of a priority and you know, people are spending most of their time uh, exploring their interests. They might not have any interests if they haven't been exposed to anything. Yeah. So um, I think that that's really important. And I, you know, we've seen it happen in the 20th century because the 20th century probably did more for productivity than any, than, than all of humanity up to that point. You know, people were working, 80 hours a week in 1900 and then it was down to under 40 by the by the year 2000 and that gave way to a lot of free time for people to explore interests and because of that in the 20th century we saw this explosion in every art form we even saw new art forms get created we saw film um you know rock and roll music all these different great art forms and there's only going to be more and more time to do it so it's it's pretty exciting from that perspective um, but it's all because we're spending less time working. Yeah, we uh, recently had Andrew Barnes on the show who was talking about a four-day work week. He's saying, you know, we, we've gone from 80 hours to the 40 hours. Why don't we keep, it's about time to, to cut it down a little bit more. Are you on board with that? You want to go to 32 or 30 or less? Yeah, I think 32 is achievable right now. Um, yeah. And then, you know, over the coming decades, we're going to see that uh, scaled back quite a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, ideally, we we should reach that utopian state where you know you're working one or two hours a week that might be the year 2100 but uh, so maybe my kids will live to see it but i won't well cool i love these discussions it's fun to dream out in the future let me ask just one thing to bring us back to what what people can do now when they're thinking about it as we're talking to leaders of these scaling companies when they're thinking about automation what's one sign that they should should be embracing or one one area of their business where they should really think about i mean if if they're starting to adopt crm systems erp systems on a big level What's a way they can start in the right way so they don't get to a mammoth size and have to go back and re-engineer everything? What kind of advice would you give to somebody at that stage? At that stage, you want to pay attention to your data. So as your revenue is growing, if your OPEX in certain departments is, is growing at the same pace, that's a problem. Um, and that, that's where you need to start looking at some forms of automation. So you know, if you grow from you know, 50 million to 100 million in revenue, um, yet you're customer service department went from 5 million a year in OPEX to 10 million a year in OPEX, um, there, there's a problem there. So when you start to see things moving linearly with your with your growth, um, there's a huge opportunity there for process improvement. 
and automation. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a really good opportunity. Cool. John, thanks so much for being on the show. We appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing your insights. You're obviously kind of on the on the forefront of these things. So we, we look forward to, to staying in touch with you and hearing from you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Neil.